0: Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places: sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com/slash/LakevillePodcast. Again, that's patreon.com/slash/LakevillePodcast. The second wave of support. Comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Els's. In the nineties, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau-Montreal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food. Els's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of GoodMix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEVIL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevilpodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode.
1: So welcome to the LikeVIL podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today it is my great honor to finally meet, and, well, online, I guess, over the phone, uh, the philosopher Susan Neiman. I've been saying Neiman all these years, but apparently in English you're allowed to say Neiman. I answered. You yeah. answer to either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, how would you, how would you describe yourself to our listeners, Susan? <laughs> 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 wow
2: um i just I mean, think like,
1: i just think of you as a philosopher but
2: uh yeah sure i i am a philosopher i'm a philosopher and a writer um I write about good and evil i was born in Atlanta, Georgia, but have spent most of my adult life in berlin, so you can call me uh a rootless cosmopolitan Jewish intellectual i <laughs> answer that as well uh, <laughs> also mother of three grandchildren how's that for
1: uh located that's uh, that's fantastic so you know as i mentioned to you in in our email correspondence i've been assigning your books to my classes for years i teach a class which is called good and evil which i actually i all the courses i teach i i designed myself but i designed the good and evil class based on that wonderful, wonderful book you wrote a number of years ago, Evil in Modern Thought. And it's just, the way that book is designed, it's just a delightful introduction to modern philosophy, and also, uh, which really grabs students. But because it's thematic, it it sort of hangs together better, better than the usual survey course, which is just sort of scattershot and you know, it's like, oh, this week we're doing epistemology, and this week we're doing, you know, whatever. I, the the fact that it hangs together thematically tends to grab students. They go deeper, and then uh, the thinkers that they are really grabbed by in that book, they would uh, sort of go in more deeply into the primary sources for their essays and things like that. But right. so I, I've been teach, I've assigned Moral Clarity oh, t- dozens of is- times. It's-
2: music to my ears um you know because i did write the subtitle of the book evil on modern thought as an alternative history of philosophy because of, I don't, mo-
1: of modern philosophy yeah
2: yeah yeah because yeah. i don't yeah. think that uh you know the way we tend to teach introductory philosophy is uh first of all it's boring secondly it's not faithful to the questions that bring most people to philosophy, and that brought most of the great philosophers of the canon to philosophy. So, I'm delighted to hear that you're doing that. I actually have a project that's very much on the back burner, which is to um, edit a, a textbook that would go along with that book. So you're making me think maybe I should get back to it. But oh, you it, should
1: you should totally oh you should totally do it. Like I, I think if my dream textbook that I would love to to have and I've mentioned this you know on the air to numerous philosophers and to lots of my friends but my dream textbook would be a th- uh, like an intro philosophy textbook would be thematically organized you would have uh the first book would be um would be let's say good and evil Right. Then there would be um, a second big section of, of maybe, you know, maybe like 200 pages or something like that, which would be like love and friendship. Um, and then uh, another, another section, the third section would be uh, something like the pursuit of happiness. Right. And then the, the final section would be death and dying. And that would be just a dream. And then people could sort of decide, right? I mean, the full textbook would maybe be for a year-long course. And then you could decide if you were doing one semester, you could decide, you know, maybe do, you know, one of the books or two of them. You know what I mean?
2: So why did you write it?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I think it takes – it takes I mean, I, I write certain kinds of things. But it seems to me it, it takes a certain kind of – Um, a certain kind of mind to do really, really good synthesis like that. And I'm not sure. I I think I could maybe, but like you do it extremely, extremely well. And there's people that do it well, but generally speaking, when people try and do it, they end up leaning really heavily on the one thinker that they're actually interested in. And they do sort of, uh, you know, half-assed job on the others. Cause like, like in, in evil and modern thought, you actually go really deep, not just on Kant, which of course was your dissertation, and that's you know Kant is seriously he's he's your homeboy. Uh, so like you go you go hard on the on the Kant. Everybody expects you to go hard on the Kant. You know the unity of reason that's that's Susan Nyman's thing. But you also go really really great on on Marx and on Rousseau. And on, you know, the whole – on Hegel, on on Nietzsche even, you, you really sort of go on Freud on all of them. So I think that's what you have to do to write a good synthesis. I'm not sure if I <laughs> – I'm not sure if I could cover philosophers I don't like with that much sympathy. I.
2: Actually, the difficulty the the Hegel chapter was the hardest because I really don't like Hegel. Well, Hegel and Leibniz, and then when I discovered Hegel talking about his own connections with Leibniz, that was a that was a you know treat actually to because I had sensed there was something connecting the two of them that uh, you know that made me uneasy. And of course, this is not something that Hegelians ever talk about. Which no,
1: no, <laughs> oh,
2: no. You know, my my system is just Leibniz's theodicy, except it's better. And you think, yeah, oh, yeah.
1: that's the problem. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that, that one thread of theodicy running through, that idea, that is one of those really, really powerful ideas that, Students come back to me after you know they took my good and evil class years ago um, in, in fact actually the, uh, the before we went on the air the the Mohawk activist who's going to be coming in the studio uh, you know right after we 're done with this interview she actually took my good and evil class like like wait years and years ago, when she was you know like i don 't know eighteen nineteen uh, but uh, but she she said and, and lots of them have come back and they 've said that idea has stuck with me and so they'll see something in the news and they'll see uh, a like some sort of story some narrative and they'll be like it's a theodicy and they'll they'll (laughs) they'll see right you know what's going on there they're like oh this is trying to you know make sense of this like flaw and it's trying to like it's it's amazing it's a very powerful it, it clearly is something that it answers a a deep sort of soul hunger that we have, right? That we, we want these kinds of explanations.
2: Look, I, I think that children are born, uh, well, they're probably not born with it. I think children actually are born thinking it's the best of all possible worlds until they realize that it's not. And so the question, why is there inexplicable suffering in the world and the you know how can we make sense of a world in which there's injustice i think it's a very fundamental question that virtually everybody asks at some point in their lives until you kind of discourage them from ever finding an answer and then they stop and become cynical <laughs> but um if as long as you don't become cynical as long as you don't become resigned. That is the question that is driving you.
1: Yeah, well, that that's, I think, uh, especially reading, um, you know, Why Grow Up, which was a delightful little, little book, uh, which is – I haven't – I've yet to assign that one, actually, because I actually think, <laughs> strangely enough – why grow up is something that if I was teaching a bunch of adults, I mean, I'm 45, but if I was teaching a bunch of adults, I would assign that because I know a lot of adults that, you know, the grownups that really desperately need to read that. But it it's uh, sort of paradoxically from the, from the title, you know, you would think that, oh, this would be something to assign to undergraduates. Actually, it's mainly people in their 30s that need to read that. <laughs> like, you know, it's... Uh, it's-
2: very interesting because um, the nicest thing about publishing that book and going on book tour was that about equal parts of people in their twenties came up to me and said they were buying a copy. Could I please dedicate it to their parents? And parents, <laughs> they were they wanted it dedicated to their kids, and it was about half and half. Wow, and. And the truth is, I had I really did have two uh, audiences in mind when I wrote that book. Uh, one, well, I, it, it actually started um, because a, a very good uh, German philosopher was doing an interview with me, and actually, you sound quite like him, he had read practically everything I had written, and he said, you know, I think there's one thing that connects all your work, and it's the idea of growing up. And I said, gosh... I think you're right about that, and <laughs> this is thread that runs runs through. And at the same time, Penguin wanted me to write a short introductory book, and I I said, um, okay, how about this? And they said, well, that's not a traditional question of philosophy. I thought you'd write something about free will, or you know. And I said, well, it should be a traditional question of philosophy. And actually, it is.
1: It completely um, is. Actually, it's not. It's not unorthodox at all.
2: But nobody had ever written something that was just dedicated to that. But I had I, mean, I had two kind of personal um, things in mind when I was writing it. One was I was just about to turn 60, and I knew a huge amount of people, uh, you know, talking about life being over at 40 or 50 and certainly at 60. and I didn't feel that my life was over at all. Um, And, you know, just, just being barraged with ageism and resignation and this idealization of youth. And at the same time, my own children were in their 20s and I was remembering just how awful a time that is to go through. It's so hard. And, uh, I don't know anybody who would actually, once they've gotten out of it, would would choose to repeat it. So then I started thinking, why is it that we glorify this age that, um, is so miserable? People are so unsure of themselves. Um, they're so certain that every mistake is going to be, you know, fatal and ruin their lives. And, you know, um, anyway, so it's a it's for most people it's a very unhappy time of life. Why are we telling them that it's the best time of their lives?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think there's a, a number of reasons why we tell them that. Uh, I think oh, wow. probably the the closest I've ever read is Talcott Parsons, the sort of really conservative functionalist sociologist. He, you know, it, it's crazy because. It, People get pigeonholed, thinkers get pigeonholed, and they're very often, when you go back and read them, you find that they're actually much more rich and interesting than, than you might have thought. But my wife is a sociologist, and she she was reading over a lot of the kind of classic sociologists for her comps. You know, this is years ago when she was in grad school. And I remember when she got to Talcott Parsons, she said, you know, this guy actually – is really insightful about a lot of things. And one of the things that Talcott Parsons identified in the the 40s and 50s is he said, the reason why people idealize their 20s a great deal is largely because of suburbanization and the nuclear family. People are, they miss having friends. They miss having like a rich extended network of relationships with people. And now they're just in these suburban cocoons with just their spouse and their kids and they're lonely as fuck, you know, like they're just, and that's what they largely miss is not so much the, uh, the, the, the sort of sexual adventurousness of, of being single and stuff like they miss having friends, which is really insightful. And I've, I've talked to a lot of people in their thirties and forties who are, you know, in the stage where you were then, I mean well, actually, you were doing like a a more difficult version of it because you were doing the single parent thing for quite a bit, but i but you know I have like it's my wife and I had two kids and stuff like that, and the the whole mortgage yeah that that whole thing like when you're in that stage uh you have your time is kind of accounted for, and you don't have as much uh free time for friends it's uh i don't know it's sad
2: but you see the thing is what that whole answer presupposes is a very set framework of what our lives are like sure. and they don't need to be that way nope. okay what needs to be the case is if you choose to reproduce in the time when your children are small you're going to have less time for other stuff whether it's reading for fun or you know perhaps traveling or spending as much time with your friends as you'd like to but it's a finite period of time you yeah. know and uh it's you know but uh, there are all kinds of ways to have children as well and i i really think that there's a political in the largest sense of the word political Uh, undertone to this message that you know enjoy life now because at 30 it's all going to go downhill (laughs) it's preparing people to um accept less and expect less both of themselves and of the world than is actually possible it's saying decrease your expectations yeah and you know, it's just it's uh, it's a very powerful political message.
1: Yeah, well yeah, I, yeah, you say that in in moral clarity a number of times. You're like, uh, I love that one chapter. I I my students always absolutely love it. They're like, oh my god, that's so true. Where you say like, think about what you mean when you tell somebody that be realistic. What you're really telling them is decrease your expectations. <laughs>
2: exactly exactly and i think that's what we're doing when we tell people you know enjoy the best time of your lives
1: because right? <laughs> it's all going to suck from here yeah so so we should probably i got i i could talk to you for like 5 hours about all your previous books so your your most recent book learning from the germans um evil and the uh the memory of uh race and the memory of evil uh, oh. you do something which Uh, which a lot of historians have been, especially in the last half century, have been uh, increasingly, I don't know, kind of like chicken to do. It, It used to be all the rage back in the day, comparative history. It was, you know, all the rage. But then people got more and more into specific historiographies. And so, and especially when it comes to the United States, you get American exceptionalism combined with, the size of American academia, and so you have lots of Americanists who just study the United States as if it exists like in this island outside of history right? so you have done in this book you're you 're doing a comparison uh, between the way in which uh, Germany has dealt with its Nazi past and the way in which uh, the United States has dealt with its uh, slave slave past specifically the south um, so what made you want to write this book?
2: Um, so, look, um, don't we become philosophers because uh, we want to be able to, you know, not, we want to be able to think about everything? I mean, that is why, at least certainly why I became a philosopher, right? uh, that I wouldn't be stuck with certain kinds of disciplinary boundaries. And as I say in the book, I'm not a historian. I read a hell of a lot of history in writing this book and talked to a lot of historians, um, but I'm not bound by the same kinds of rules that historians are. It's a reflection or a moral reflection on history. And there there are two ways to answer what made me want to do this. One is there was an immediate cause, and that was standing in my apartment in Berlin watching President Obama give the eulogy for the nine churchgoers who were murdered by a white terrorist in Charleston in 2015, Uh, tears streaming down my face, but also reflecting on that in the days that followed and seeing that America, for a moment anyway, was united behind the president. You had Republican governors taking down the Confederate flag. You had Walmart saying they weren't going to sell Confederate memorabilia. And it looked to me like the beginning of a process that only the Germans have a name for. They call it Vergangenheitsarbeitung, and it means working off the past. And it seemed to me that America was... Beginning that process, and since I have lived in Berlin since 1982 with a couple of breaks, uh, I know a lot about the question, and I felt, okay, maybe I can do something useful by adding, you know, bringing in the insights of just how very complicated that process has been in Germany and uh but the the other answers uh, there's a sense in which I've been writing this book ever since I got here in 1982 I don't know if you ever looked at my very first slow fire
1: book. yeah absolutely okay. all right i've read so, i've have re- re- even read your doctoral dissertation so oh my God. yeah i'm a, i'm a total like Susan Nyman fanboy yeah
2: oh this is cool i mean i'm, <laughs> I'm uh, flattered So in Slow Fire, you can see, you know, when I just arrived in Berlin, being struck by the ways in which the Germans are already in in the early 80s, constantly talking about the Nazi period. And my asking, why don't we do this about Vietnam? You know, what are we, uh, you know? why don't we learn something from this? And of course there are major differences. And the the first chapter of my book, Learning from the Germans, does, uh, I, with a little play on Nietzsche, what is it? on the use and abuse of historical comparison, instead of on the use and abuse of history for life, which is mm-hmm. what Nietzsche um, So of course there are all kinds of differences. And the first thing that people often do is point out the differences between the um, between World War II and the American Civil War, and I, I you know, I say, uh, take a look at the book. I know these are differences. <laughs> <laughs> of course. There were all kinds of differences, and and no two historical events are ever alike. And the differences can be important in some contexts, but uh, what I think is terribly important for other countries to look at is Germany did this historically unique thing so far. Germany was the first country to ever turn its perspective from being the world's worst victims to being the world's worst perpetrators. Okay. And it took them quite a while and they were, just as unwilling to do it as anybody else would be. But for a variety of reasons, both internal and external, they did it. And that is something that other countries can learn from. Now, the interesting thing is since uh, the abomination in the White House, Americans, U.S. Americans, have actually been um, much more receptive to this comparison than I thought they were going to be. I did not get any pushback on the contrary. I mean, you know, there is, uh, somebody in the white house who has called Nazis, very fine people. And they're not neo-Nazis. They're not neo anything. They're, um, straightforward Nazis. So, uh, Americans, South of your border have realized that uh, Nazis are not simply a German problem. It's something that Americans need to worry about as well. Interestingly enough the Brits are a lot slower. I was asked on two different talk shows when uh, the book came out in in England Uh, two days running Oh, well, this has nothing. I can't do a good English accent, so I won't try. (laughs) This has nothing to do with us. The Nazis were about world domination. And I said, gosh, I thought the sun never set on the British Empire. (laughs) It couldn't be the first time, so I could say it the second time. And you know they just looked at me as if I were coming from outer space or something. So uh, this is, and of course I'm not saying the British Empire was the same thing as the Third Reich, but um, nevertheless there are things that can be learned.
1: Yeah, well, I there are there are definitely a lot of a lot of fascinating um, comparisons. But I mean, one thing that there's, oh, there's so much to say, so much to say, but I just, I'll, I guess I'll start with the earlier part of the book. There, you talk a lot, um, which for me was, was quite kind of revelatory. Cause I mean, my, my wife and I go to a German Lutheran church and there's, um, definitely, uh, I mean, my wife is Finnish and I'm, I'm neither <laughs> German or Finnish, but, but, uh, we definitely, you know, there's a lot of people there who are, from Germany. Uh, There's German immigrants who came to Canada in the 19th century, sort of, uh, you know, their kind of descendants. And then there's also a lot of uh, Germans who lived in, you know, former kind of Czechoslovakia and all the kind of, all these, that big, the old Austria-Hungarian empire, all those cities that had German populations that were then expelled, you know, after the, the end of the war and things like that. And, Definitely the message I got, you know, I've gotten over the years from them is, well, a number of things. First of all, I've got the message that, you know, we basically were just collateral damage. You know, we were the victims. It was, we didn't, uh, we didn't, we'd been living in those places for 10 generations and we got tarred with the Nazi brush and it wasn't really, we didn't support the Nazis. So there's. You hear that very, very often, that this was just, you know, we got, we got like sort of whipped up and it wasn't our fault kind of thing, right? I've heard that. But then also the, the ones who grew up in West Germany, they saw themselves as being, oh, we've completely confronted the Nazi past and we were denazified and we were brought, I mean, I have, you know, I could give you so many examples, but uh, my my older son, who's who's, 17 now he went in the cadets here and uh just sort of like i don't know like a kind of a military reserves like but for young people and they they learn all sorts of amazing skills but part of it is they wear a uniform and she said she was just completely shocked she's like i never let my kids do that because you know i was raised to be so kind of again i would never wear a uniform and like it's just part of my like upbringing as a as a German. We it just scares up too many ghosts for us and and all this stuff. Right. But but then they say, oh, it's no surprise that you have all these neo Nazis in the East uh, because like they didn't go through that the way we did. And here in your book, you are making a, I think, a very very, or at least from the the, the worlds that I move through, you are making a very very. Uh, sort of uh heterodox claim right that uh that in fact that in fact the uh the gdr did a better job of sort of working through the how do you maybe you could just sort of summarize what your argument is there
2: sure uh yeah it's very heterodox i'm about to get uh you know ripped up the book is coming out in german and um three weeks or something. So that, that will be the most controversial feature of the book in Germany. I know.
1: Look, um, here too. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, and there's a huge amount of ignorance, uh, for complicated and interesting reasons. So, we tend to think of the Nazis' primary targets as Jews. Okay. We we tend to think of anti-Semitism as the central fact about Nazi ideology. And when we think about the uh, you know the crimes of the Nazis, we all think, well, they killed six million Jews. Well, that was a huge crime. Um how many uh slavic civilians do you think they killed? Well, you've read my books. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A lot, yeah. 14 million. Wow. 14 million um c- uh, that doesn't even actually count the entire um slavic peoples because it doesn't count. Uh, take account of everybody in the rest of Eastern Europe. It's that, those are only citizens of uh, of the Soviet Union. We also tend to think that uh, the greatest generation of combined of uh, the U.S. and Britain saved Europe from fascism.
1: No, we we don't think that in Canada.
2: <laughs> well, you, you think the Canadians did too?
1: Yeah. Well, we don't. We we definitely in Canada. Uh, I I know America because my wife is American, and I've I've lived in the United States for quite a long time. Uh, but I I know that Americans believe that. But uh, no, in, in Canada, we know that uh, that uh, the the Americans. Definitely helped a great deal with with money and with munitions and things like that. But in terms of actually putting bodies in harm's way, they they you know they came in late and they they didn't ha- suffer big casualties. The really big casualties were the were the Russians by far, and then you know after that, sort of French and British and other other groups. But uh, I, yeah,
2: the groups don't even come. It's thirteen million
1: soldiers of the red army.
2: Okay. Who gave their lives to free Europe from fascism and the other groups don't even um, play a role. I mean, the French gave up after six weeks, Uh, you know, (laughs) Uh, so, so first of all, um, that's the first thing we need to know. The second thing we need to know is that uh, anti-communism was (laughs) at least as central a factor in um, in Nazi ideology as anti-Semitism, okay? Sometimes they were, um, re- you know, put together as in the cliché of the, the Bolshevik capitalist uh, Jew, which is nonsensical. But uh, anti-communism was much the driving force of... Um, uh, of the Nazis. Now what that means is that the people who ran, the, who took over the GDR after the Red Army liberated Germany, were people who had either been in exile because their lives were uh, uh, at stake or they'd been in concentration camps. So they were genuinely anti-fascists, whereas the people in West Germany, by and large, were not. You know, they were people who had gone along with things. Now, you had the same, the same there's a term in German, um, I guess it's translated as fellow traveler in English. The bulk of the population, you had the same amount of fellow traveling on bo- both sides, in East and West. But the difference was in the leadership. And the leadership of East Germany was genuinely, resolutely anti-fascist. So they uh, tried many more, put many more Nazis uh, to trial, uh, condemned many more to prison, and even executed quite a number. They put in um, programs in all of the schools. Children, every child, well, first of all, they renovated the concentration camps of Buchenwald and uh, Sachsenhausen and every school child had to visit them. None of this happened in the West, none at all. Um, You know, you, you had May 8th was celebrated as a day of liberation from the beginning of East Germany. Uh, It was called the day of defeat or unconditional surrender in West Germany until 1985. So, you know, you had an entirely different attitude. This is not to say that East Germany did everything perfectly. It's not to, um, you know, defend all kinds of things that people know about East Germany. Unfortunately, it's all people tend to know about East Germany. They've heard about the Stasi and they've heard about the wall. Um, It's not to defend any of those things, but it is to say that... East Germany was genuinely anti-fascist at a time when most of the government, most of the universities, most of the schools, most of the police uh, officers, um, most of the diplomatic service in West Germany was staffed by former Nazis who were not repentant at all. There was not a move to... um, Go through this process of facing up to the past until much, much later uh, in West Germany.
1: Okay. Well, there's, I guess. Okay, uh, a couple of things about that. I mean, first of all, you, um, this is this is a passage from your book, and so you say, um, though Stalinism was a perversion of an ideal of equality that began in the Enlightenment, Nazism had no ideals beyond rampant tribalism to per, to pervert it all. Under Stalin, at the latest, communism turned totalitarian. But unless you believe states of mind have no meaning, there's a world of difference between a person who began by fighting for equality and solidarity and one who began from a racist worldview. That's what Tony Jutt was willing to meet with, was willing to meet with one, but wouldn't share a table with the other, right? So you're you're talking about sort of comparing these the sort of the twin evils per, that many people see of uh, the 20th century of sort of uh, totalitarian communism with uh, kind of Nazism totalitarian fascism right and that you you see you talk about this false equivalency but it, you know the book I read just before yours was actually uh, Tony Jut's post war uh, people yeah. have been people have been recommending this book to me for years. And finally, uh, we had Adam Adam Gopnik on the podcast, and he just was talking about what a wonderful man he was, and they were friends, and he said, Oh, and you know, and that book post war is just in in a league of its own. And I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. People have been trying to get me to <clears throat> so I finally buckled down and read the book. <clears throat> and he seems to be um actually very partial to that equivalency uh, he does not see it as a, a false equivalency. He thinks they uh, were both both pretty bad, regardless of what their intentions were but but anyway, so you said that in that part, and then later on in the book um, in this where you're sort of responding to, you're kind of it's kind of like notes on the delta after you'd been there for a little bit and you'd spend time, and you say, um, one lesson from my time in the delta: motives are always mixed." And in the end, it is not motives but deeds that matter, as Arendt showed in *Eichmann in Jerusalem*. It doesn't matter what moves you; it's what you do and leave behind that counts. And I thought I immediately I was like, "What?" <laughs> and I flipped back to the previous comment. I was like, "What?" Like you're you're sort of saying Stalinism, even though it's you you completely acknowledge it horrific, but because it it had good intentions initially it's it's better than nazism cuz nazism was just pure fucking evil from the get go uh, yeah. but then later on you're saying it's what and and if we're just to ch- you know just to look by the body count and by then actually communism has a you know has a, by the, by the by the second standard in your book has a, a bigger body count
2: So, um, you're asking complicated questions. Let me try to, um, uh, answer them adequately. The passage that you quote about, um, you know, where I referenced Tony Judd, who was also a good friend of mine and one of the smartest people I ever met in my life, and one whose voice I miss terribly in these dark times, um... Tony and I were in the process of uh, uh, preparing a big conference together on exactly the question, how do you compare fascism and communism, okay? So that's the context of all of that. And, you know, Tony's saying as much as I condemn lots of features of uh, stalinism i would sit down with an ex stalinist and i would not share you know break bread with an ex nazi the really interesting thing is he wanted to do the conference in it was half his institute half my institute he wanted to do it in germany at my institute and um, didn't realize until much much later that for many of our if not most of our of our guests the opposite would have been true. They would have sat down, the West Germans would have sat down every morning for breakfast with an ex-Nazi. But in in any case, so Tony made that distinction too. Um, Look, I think people are right to be torn about the role of intention. I think we are always torn about the role of intention uh, in deciding how much how criminal something is and how much to punish someone. It's the difference between murder and manslaughter. And the difference between first-degree murder and, you know, second-degree murder and and all of that. That is, we we believe that people's intentions count, and yet, you know, in the end – um you know we're conflicted about it. So you've nicely and rightly pointed out a conflict in not just two different books of mine, but in, in one book of mine. Arendt talks, I mean, the context in which Arendt talks about intention is a very important one. You know, she's ta- so she's talking about uh, the fact that Eichmann or other people did not need to have evil intentions in order to be responsible for a great deal of evil. And in her masterpiece, Eichmann in Jerusalem, even though she got certain things historically wrong, as she would have had to the uh files weren't available at the time that she wrote the book. Um, she talks about different levels of intention from people who had very good intentions. That is members of the Jewish councils who were actually trying to save people. Um, people who had mediocre intentions. They were simply trying to get by without any, um, uh, you know, causing any trouble Uh, or undergoing any trouble. They were simply doing their jobs. They simply wanted to get ahead. And the point that she was making is that without a combination of all of those kinds of intentions, uh, you probably wouldn't have had the Holocaust, okay? Um, The number of people with really evil intentions is pretty small. And I think that's true of other crimes as well, um, as in writing about the Emmett Till case.
1: That was really, that was such a disturbing chapter. Oh, that was, oof. (laughs) That's, uh, yeah, it's very, very, so, yeah, I mean, I guess this, this is a question because, you know, I have a, a lot of students who are, uh, you know, recent immigrants to to Canada from from you know all over the place. Uh, but you know, I get a lot of them that are from you know various uh, Soviet satellite states, and uh, they are. It's amazing. They are you know my my department, as is the case with a lot of humanities departments in North America, is you know very 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 far left and very sympathetic to Marx. In fact, the uh, the. De- the display case outside of our department uh was featured on a in a magazine as trying to make fun of like left wing humanities departments because the display case was it looked like a kind of shrine to marx like there was uh it, like they had all these beautiful pictures of Marx and his books arranged lovingly and it, it did it, i mean in retrospect I could see it did look a pretty kind of ridiculous but but so there you know there are a lot of very very um, and there's people in my department who are old enough that they or their parents did these sort of, um, sort of Disney tours of the Soviet Union where they would take you on these factories, which we now knew, now know the people were all actors and it was not a real factory and stuff like that. Uh, but, and so when these students come in who've come from these places, they, it, it's a very, very – they bring these voices into your classroom, which are really quite fascinating because sometimes they'll say things uh, – you know, people will spout off, for instance, people will spout off in in a classroom about, you know, Israel or communism or – and you'll have a Palestinian student sitting right there, right? And you'll also have, like, an Israeli sitting there. And wow. so the, they – they are a big reality check, right? And they'll say, oh, "That's actually not true. <laughs> like this is actually what's going on." And they 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 bring this kind of you know first person testimony. But probably the one of the biggest reality checks has been all of these students coming from the uh, former Soviet Union and stuff like that, and and just giving it like both barrels to. You know, people in my department who are still trying to defend the GDR and still trying to defend and saying, like, what are you talking about? Like, that's that's not true at all. And they they have these anecdotes that are just so horrible. I mean, you know,
2: the problem is you're talking about students in college right now um, are too young ever to have experienced, um, you know, state socialism at all.
1: No, but they're, and, their parents, their parents and grandparents, yeah, you know, remember well, all this stuff.
2: You know, but they're, I mean, memory is a complicated thing. Yes. And uh, it so depends on who you talk to. And I have talked to, you know, many, many people who are close to the events, uh, who have very different experiences, so i would beware of talking about what we know you know um we have been since 1989 we have been given an incredibly one-sided picture of state socialism that was not Uh, you know, that was denied in Germany, certainly three, a mere three years before the wall came down. People during the the historians debate, you know, uh, people were saying it is immoral to compare communism and fascism. This is in West Germany, by the way. So, uh, you know, we've gone through a sea change and it's very important to think about what function these comparisons have, and one of them is to say that, you know, neoliberalism is the only thing that works, guys, because any anything else ends in the gulag. Jesus, I read a quote from M- MSNBC, one of the MSNBC um, talking heads, was uh, spouting out he was not going to uh, vote for for Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders would be a disaster because, and I quote, if Fidel Castro and the Reds had won the Cold War, they'd be shooting people in Central Park, and I would be one of them. This is...
1: That's mad. That's madness. That's madness. I mean, we have we have social democracy here, in, and and when you were describing the German uh, healthcare system and, and you know how you take sick days and all that stuff, that that's exactly what we have here in Canada. So, and it's that, uh, and I and I love that point you made. Uh, I sent that passage to a lot of my friends in the states, where you know it's it's a mistake that the American left always. When they're trying to, you know, score points and, and talk about how we could totally do single-payer health care, they always point to something like Sweden or Denmark. or right. And uh, they don't go for Germany for obvious reasons. But then it, it makes it so easy to shoot the argument down because you can say, well, you've got a largely homogeneous, you know, white Protestant population. Of of course, you you've got high social trust and you can – bring in you know you're bowling alone and you're like you could say well well, this is this is why it's possible in finland but it would never work here with a, a bigger country you know 60 million people
2: well, no it's first of all it's 80 million but secondly it's the world's fourth largest economy and it works just fine we still have capital we still have income inequality. We even have homelessness. All those great things, you know. Yeah,
1: but it works. Oh. Yeah, and but yeah, no, I, I definitely that that was uh, that was well taken. But I grew up perhaps in a special, you know, here in Montreal, which is a general a very left wing city, and I grew up in a very left wing environment. So I, I grew up with the opposite kind of situation where, um, you know, we had we had like huge support for the Soviet Union. I mean my my first girlfriend or one of my first girlfriends, her dad still was like a Stalinist, like an unapologetic, you know, unapologetic Stalinist like in the 1990s like and he didn't oh. and uh, and thought that uh, all the bad press was just capitalist propaganda. So and we thought, "Oh, Cuba's fantastic and, you know, all this stuff." So it it didn't. It actually, what it's been here, and and for me is actually a correction that you know suddenly these people who lived in those places coming back and saying, actually, no, that's not you know that's not, and it's sort of it. It's I'm interesting. Sorry, yeah, I
2: would have to know exactly who I was talking to and exactly what their experience was, um, you know, before I took any. 20-year-olds, you know, I was there and I know what it's like view of, uh, you know, the formerly socialist countries. I would also say that um, certainly in East Germany now, a majority of people wish they had state socialism again. Um, And you have all over Eastern Europe, you have an enormous amount of... Uh, disillusionment with neoliberalism. So uh, you know, this is uh, it's take it take it with a lot of grains of salt.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it it needs to be neoliberalism or state socialism. Why not neoliberalism or social democracy? I agree. I mean, that's uh, I mean, that's been you know Absolutely. that's definitely but but right now you know it's uh here in Quebec there's there's one party in Quebec uh, Quebec Solidaire which is basically the last bastion of social democracy here and they get you know they win a, a couple of seats in certain districts that are very progressive like mine but uh but for the most part people have just they've given up on that and they've moved towards towards other things, towards ethnic nationalism, towards... It's very depressing. I mean, it just seems like increasingly people are very tribal. And the a lot of the people that I knew went from my you know, younger years who were on the left, uh, a lot of them have sort of concluded that you can only really get these left-wing policies in when you have a high level of social trust. And you can only have a high level of social trust when you have a high level of homogeneity, which means uh, we need to give up on pluralism and multiculturalism if we want to have social democracy. That we can't basically like uh, – and this this is the depressing conclusion of um, – who, who's his name? The guy who wrote uh, Bowling Alone, Harvard, blanking on his yeah. name. I'm blanking on his name. His His most recent research is very – Depressing. He basically says that uh, progressives have to make a choice. Like you can have uh, multiculturalism um, and sort of pluralism and diversity is our strength and all that stuff. You can have that, or you can have a generous welfare state, but you can't have both because the uh, as as diversity goes up, support for the welfare for a generous welfare state goes down. And that's across the board. That's even in places like Finland, Sweden. Uh, he he studied ten different countries, and in ten different countries, support for um gener- like things like you know generous maternity and paternity leave, uh, generous support for for healthcare for schools, uh, you know the, the whole the whole thing. Um, that it's just a direct relationship. That, you know, as one goes up, one goes down. So he said it's probably better to try and uh, create more of a, a sense of us and then you can get your, you know, social democratic policies in that you want. I mean, what, what do you think about that?
2: I haven't read it, so I don't like commenting on things that I have.
1: <laughs> but just what, is your, what does your gut tell you when you hear that? Say say bullshit or?
2: My gut tells me that um, at this particular historical moment, although there have been other similar ones, um, very (laughs) pessimistic prognoses of our future um, strike people as... um, you know, as appropriate. I don't, I don't want to get nasty about it and say they sell well. Um,
1: I, but they do sell uh, well, (laughs) they They do sell well. (laughs)
2: Um, you know, I, I just, you take a, you take a gigantic thesis like that and you really want to look at the data. um, and I, you know, since I haven't seen it, I, I can't, uh, I can't call it into question.
1: Yeah. Um, well, let's just, okay, I just, I noticed the <clears throat> the time and I know it's really late in Germany. So I'm going to try and get to, because we got so many questions from listeners who've read your, read your book and want to ask you questions about it. So um, <clears throat> the, just very quickly for those of our listeners who are not clear on this, there's in the second to last chapter in the book, you propose, you talk about, you know, reparations for slavery. And you say that there's talk about precedents for this and you you answer certain objections to this. Um, we got a, a, a bunch of different questions pertaining specifically to that uh, chapter. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, I'll try and get to a couple of them. But so here's one of them. Um, this is from a... Uh, a friend of mine and a listener who's actually been on the podcast before, a novelist and uh, Harvard lawyer, uh, Alexander Boldizar. And he writes, uh, any argument that makes the son pay for the sins of his father is a recipe for a permanent Balkan-style resentment and war. If there is an individual who sinned, let him pay. If there is an individual who suffered, let her get reparations, but no genetic-based debt. My Jewish grandfather was entitled to reparations for property stolen by the Nazis when he was sent off to an extermination camp. The main property was 100 hectares of forest. He did the paperwork for 10 and got those back. The other 90 he didn't get to before he died. My mom or I can cannot claim those 90 now that he's dead, because he was the one who sat in the camps, not my mom or I. The individual is a natural and well-defined limiting point. If you start extending that to descendants, then you end up talking about one-eighth this and one-sixteenth that race, which will forever sound like racist speak to me. The argument about a citizen taking on the responsibilities of his or her chosen country sounds good in the abstract, but does that mean an immigrant from Kenya today also needs to pay reparations? Does she get reparations? There is no peace in that approach. So, what do you what do you think about that?
2: So, very well put. Um, first of all, the question about the hectares of forest wherever it was actually, um, if it had been German forest, it would be. Uh, you know, he and his mother would be able to claim it.
1: This, this was this was in Slovakia. Uh,
2: yeah. Okay. I'm just saying the argument would be uh, people benefit from inheritances, and and this is actually an important you know key to the whole argument for slavery. If your parents leave you something. Um, you, your position in the world is completely different than it would be without it. And even if they only leave you, you know, a tiny bit so that you can put a down payment on a home rather than living at the mercy of a landlord for the rest of your life, it makes an enormous difference. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know the the argument for reparations for slavery is that uh, we actually white people. Okay, so so there are two arguments. Uh, I mean, there's several arguments, but certainly people, many people, benefited from slavery who did not themselves directly own slaves. And that's a really important thing that's been forgotten. There's been uh, wonderful historical research in the past 10 years, uh, lots of which I quote in that chapter, about the ways in which the slavery system extends, you know, in many ways, up through the 60s, okay, Um, in terms of not just individual prejudice but federally mandated uh, denial of opportunities to people of color, okay? So the idea that it was all a very long time ago uh, is a little ridiculous. If you're in the United States, so, for example, Social Security, um, you know, the the little bit of money that guarantees that you won't uh, die on the street, I mean, hopefully, uh, if you, uh, once you're too old to work anymore, or that allowed you, your parents or your grandparents to buy a house that you later in some sense, even a small amount of inheritance benefited for those opportunities were legally denied to black people. Okay in Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal because he couldn't have gotten it through uh, Southern politicians had he included black people. So these are all facts that I didn't know until I started doing this research and that most people don't know. But once you see how vast the system of legal uh, discrimination was and how far the ramifications went, Uh, then, first of all, you can't say it was all back in the past. Secondly, to say, you know, people only, uh, people need to be considered as individuals. Well, that's wonderful. What about normal inheritances? I mean, are we to say that there's no difference in somebody who uh, inherits money or a house or even whose parents are able, again, we're talking about the States, which is very definitely not a social democracy, and where going to uh, college regularly bankrupts people. Um, Is there a difference between knowing that you can go to college because your parents have been saving for it, or they make enough money, or they can help you out with loans, or whatever? Um, Of course we get things from our parents, And they make a huge difference. So, you know, some of the arguments about everybody should just simply be responsible for their own debts ignore all of the ways in which we are indebted to our parents. And in fact, you know, this goes straightforwardly financially. If your parents die and let's say they leave you a house or they leave you a bank account or they leave you um, a life insurance policy and your parents are indebted, you first have to pay off your debts, their debts rather, before you can take on the inheritance. And the arguments, you know, those debts go out of your inheritance and the, the arguments in favor of reparations are simply um, based on that principle of fairness, you don't get to benefit from an inheritance unless you also assume some responsibility for a debt.
1: okay, that's uh good okay. another question. This is from a uh, listener named Michel Dab. He uh, you know he talked quite a bit. I'll, I'll skip this part, but basically he was profoundly moved by uh, the part in the book where you you talked about um, you know Amari and his sort of inversion of of Nietzsche's whole thing about how like Ressentiment and slave morality and and he says, you know, well actually uh, that is the that's the right of the victim to to not forget and to want to sort of go back um you know and to like actually I'm just gonna read that passage so people know what we're talking about before I ask the question. So uh you say um like, uh, sort of, it's kind of like in praise of a ressentiment, right? Like, uh, so you say, uh, Jean-Marie, uh, absurdly, resentment demands that the the irreversible be reversed, the event undone. And Marie turns Nietzsche on his head, proudly including himself among those whose morals Nietzsche despised as slave morality, Since every genuine morality was always a morality for losers, it may be natural to think of time as flowing only forward, but that thinking is not only extramoral but anti-moral. Man has the right and the privilege to declare himself to be in disagreement with every natural occurrence, including the biological healing that time brings about. The moral power to resist contains the protest. The revolt against reality, which is rational only as long as it is moral. The moral person demands annulment of time, in the particular case under question, by nailing the criminal to his deed. Thereby, and through a moral turning back of the clock, the latter can join his victim as a fellow human being. The only thing that could possibly truly make up for those crimes would be turning back time and undoing them, uh, Amity knew this is impossible, but he insisted that we recognize the depth and the morality of the longing for it. He also insisted on its sanity, arguing against the psychologists who were beginning the field of trauma studies. His resentment, he said, was a form of the human condition. My God, this is a beautiful passage. Uh, his resentment, he said, was a form of the human condition that is morally and historically of a higher order Than healthy straightness, (laughs) he rejected he rejected the morally impossible thought that the survivors' wounds could be healed by the death of six million Germans. The only way to solve the problem, he concluded, was by permitting resentment to remain alive in the one camp and aroused by it, self mistrust in the other. Wow! 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 Um, Well. Wow, let
2: me give credit where credit is due. Uh, most of that passage, I was quoting jean uh one of my own heroes, and in case your um, listeners don't know who he is, um, he was a self-taught philosopher and writer who can talk about slave morality because he was actually a slave in Auschwitz for two years. So, yeah,
1: well, yeah. A, a bunch of uh, my listeners... I went and bought his books <laughs> after <laughs> reading that. But anyway, so this is a question from Michelle Dab. He says, uh, Professor Na- uh, Nyman, how familiar are you with the collective mental anguish of the children of European Jews who were not killed, that is, Jewish baby boomers raised by people who were profoundly damaged? Does ressentiment apply to the collective? Have you done an analysis of people who buy into Amadee's proposition versus people who wash the memory away?
2: What a great question. I know, I know, I have,
1: I know right? <laughs>
2: I have not done an analysis. I have known many of those people, however. I um, know many of them quite well. And uh, I think it is certainly the case that there's profound psychic damage along with the profound wish to turn back time and to have had their parents not had that kind of experience. Um, but you know, I haven't, I haven't done a study of this. I just know quite a number of those people. Um, and, uh, one or two of them I interviewed for the book. Um, you know, I mean, the only thing that I would question about the question itself is whether any of those people actually succeeded. It suggests, your questioner suggests that it's possible to go both ways, it's possible to, you know, repress and forget and it's possible to sort of follow Amory's prescription, I don't think it's possible to repress and forget. I've never run across anybody who did. Um, so, in fact, I, I sometimes run across the opposite, frankly, that was just, I hope I'm not stepping into any mess here when I said.
1: <laughs> American- go for it, go for it, yeah. I watched the
2: American TV series Transparent, which I actually hated more than I have hated any television series that I actually watched. And um, But it, it describes a number of phenomena, and one of them is the ways in which certainly the U.S. Jewish community, and I can't speak about the Canadian, but... The U.S. Jewish community often holds itself together uh, by a connection to the Holocaust, which is very tenuous. Okay, um, I don't want to call it a false memory of the Holocaust exactly, but I, you know, I I know people. I actually know people who uh, from L.A., as a matter of fact, from the L.A. Jewish community, who, um, you know have some relative, you know, a great uncle who was touched by the Holocaust, perhaps lost family there, and who focus on that as a source of their own trauma a couple of generations later. So so I while I sometimes know people who, um, let's say, exaggerate the existence of intergenerational trauma. I don't know anybody uh, who is just able to say, okay, you know, well, that was their life. I'm going on with mine. I just, I don't know it. I've never.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. My wife and I were listening to uh, this American life last night and they had this just wonderful, wonderful segment. I'm not sure if it's a new one, but it was all on uh on black russians they're basically like you know african americans who moved to the soviet union like in the 1930s and you know uh, 20s 30s and 40s and you know raised families there and like and so she it's real oh it's really really good uh, and, and the one of the uh women that they the segment is called it's kind of a cheesy title but it's like uh, black in the ussr <laughs> Yeah, like you'll sort of play on back in the USSR. But anyway, um, and they – it's very interesting talking about sort of the differences between racism in the United States and in Russia. And, uh, well, I won't won't steal from you, but a lot of it has to do with exactly what you're talking about, like this intergenerational trauma. And the black Russians seem to think that a lot of this is sort of – that they interview seem to think that this is a lot of kind of African American neurosis, and that you know you know, yes, um I've dealt with people wanting to touch my hair, and I've dealt with people asking me funny questions, but mainly it was just from a position of ignorance, it wasn't mean spirited, and you know, when somebody asks you where you're from, it's not necessarily mean. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it might just be because they don't see people that look like you that often. And like, if you're going to constantly be it's just a very fascinating, you know, listening to these two black women, one who was raised in Moscow, uh one who was ra- raised in St. Louis having this conversation and all these things that the, the woman from St. Louis sees as microaggressions. Uh, this woman from Moscow is saying, oh, come on. Like, maybe they meant it this way. Like, why are you interpreting everything in the worst possible way? And meanwhile, the woman from St. Louis is sort of like, you know, talking to her, you know, you can almost see her, like, looking at her like Candide, you know, like, wow, you are way too optimistic. <laughs> like, you're just, you know, you're sort of whistling through uh, through a minefield and you're just not noticing how often people are dissing you. But... uh Anyway, um uh, thank so, you
2: for that. I'm a huge fan of Paul Robson who spent a lot of time of course in the USSR. Um so I've read about his experiences there, but I will listen to that. Uh, oh,
1: oh, you'll you'll love it. You'll love it. So this is a question from Carrie uh, James uh, Charlton in the UK. Um and he says, um if taking on full citizenship means taking accountability for actions of the state, or other citizens, even when those occurred before you were born or settled in a country, would it not mean that the contemporary descendants of slaves, if they wished to be considered citizens of equal parity, would also have to take responsibility for the actions of slavers? Or else risk somehow being seen as separate from, and arguably lesser to, the citizenry who did, I have seen the same argument used by people in favor of Brexit, highlighting the absurdity of culturally asking the British to, as Europeans, feel shame for the rise of Hitler.
2: The British don't need to feel shame for the rise of Hitler. I mean, that's such a weird... um, (laughs) I I mean, nobody ever suggested that they should.
1: Oh, but, Uh, but becoming good Europeans and becoming part of, like, the EU and becoming...
2: Kind of a reductio ad absurdum look. Um, (laughs) It's also also assuming that, you know, descendants of slaves and descendants of slaveholders are all the same color, and they're not, you know? Once again, as I said in the beginning, um, if the effects of slavery had ended when um, chattel slavery was abolished, we would be having a very different conversation. They did not. We first need to get the history straight. Okay.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and, uh, you know, the effects of slavery have been, um, you know, both uh, in terms of trauma, but also just in straight forward um, financial and educational opportunities been carried over into this generation. So, you know,
1: it's let's not <laughs> not going to not going to go there. This is that this is a, this is a uh, question from. Okay. A-
2: hey, John, um, I should say that when I started writing that chapter, I left it to next to the last. And I knew that if I was going to compare the differences between the U.S. and um, uh you know German ways of dealing with historical crimes. I was going to have to deal with reparations, but I really wasn't sure how I felt about them. Um, and so
1: I—that's that, do- by the way—that's really evident in the chapter. It yeah. has it has an almost like platonic dialogue, like when you when you sort of raise the the sort of the counter argument. It's uh like you're really steel manning it, like you're really putting your shoulder into it like i i can tell I can see you sort of like, eh? 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 <laughs> like
2: i had i thought my way into that conclusion um very you know, very
1: obvious, very obvious
2: yeah and and uh you know the practicability questions. Are going to have to come later and uh, it's complicated but if you think in terms of sheer justice I was stuck with this conclusion the interesting thing is I there I was and I was under a lot of pressure from my publisher to finish the damn thing it was already later than I had wanted it to be and I thought oh boy I put myself out on so much of a limb, you know, there's ta coats, Coates and that's about it. And, I, you know, I'm going to be, um, you know, people who followed me t- in the book to that point are going to say, oh, she's, you know, she's go- gone over the line. And less than half a year after I handed in that manuscript, uh, five different U.S. presidential candidates were talking about reparations in different ways. So and I couldn't have imagined it. So the conversation is changing. You know, people are thinking differently about these questions, and it's evolving. It's evolving in the way that, uh, you know, if you like, gay marriage evolved enormously quickly.
1: Well, I mean, David Brooks was writing an op-ed in favor of reparations. I was just like, oh, my God.
2: (laughs) Oh, I know. And there was a, you know, debate in the House of Representatives. So, Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, things are definitely uh, definitely moving. I think by far, um, I think your argument for reparations is, I think, um, significantly. Well, I mean, you had the benefit of being able to see what he laid out, and you know, kind of improve on and sort of carry over elements of his argument. But I, I think your argument is is better than Tanahasi Coates' argument. And the other ones that I've seen, it's actually – it's a very, very strong argument. I, I think part of the reason that it's strong is because he, you do seem to sort of talk your way into that corner. <laughs> like, right. like reason your way into that. Like, oh, if if that then – oh, fuck. oh my, wh- yeah. Whoa. Uh, like, wow. <laughs> that is
2: actually how I felt when I was writing
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> But But uh, – so this is a, a, a question which I actually – I think the strongest part of your argument, as I said to you in uh, email the other day when we were talking, uh, the whole question of the it's actually the kind of the, the system of neo-slavery that right. came after emancipation, which is for for various kind of, you know, not necessarily moral, but for logistical reasons is uh, is probably the strongest foundation for um for an argument for reparations, because we have really good documents. We have lots of good numbers. We have, we have, you know, lots of, we can actually see what happened. We can tell, right. That they would go and arrest thousands and thousands of people on bullshit charges just before the harvest time so that they could then turn around and like sell them out. Right. So uh, I think, I think that's very strong, but, but anyway, this, this argument to, this question does not pertain to that but this is this is a question from a friend of mine who's a a historian who basically has kind of an expert in the history of the slave trade you know going all over South America and the Americas and Africa. Yeah. So um so he writes um by the time the bulk shipments of slaves to North America uh 4% of total slaves shipped went to the United States and Mexico combined. It was late in the slave trade. Most tribes that were the typical victims of slavery had been driven away or devastated. The slaver kings wanted to maintain their lavish lifestyles despite the lack of traditional victims, so they ended up turning on their own people. That is to say, the vast majority of the late slaves shipped those that made up the 4% shipped to mainland North America, were themselves the sons and daughters of professional slavers um, or the relatives of professional slave raiders. Does this not cloud your moral clarity a little bit, Professor Nyman?
2: No, because um, this is a standard argument that's, that's actually brought up that um, many Africans... Uh, you know, profited from from slave trading themselves. No question about it. And I'm sure your friend knows more of the details than I do. Um, But, and, you know, of course there was slavery in Africa between uh, different tribes. What was different, however, is what happened after the end of chattel slavery. And there was none of that in Africa okay that is even if you wanted to argue that there should be more responsibility um f- by the african nations and frankly you know what happened to africa after slavery um is is not something i think anybody um you know anybody would want to um, <laughs> What shall I say? I think they've done enough. Uh, I think they've paid enough for those crimes. But my argument really does turn on all the things that happened after chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. And uh, those were not things that you saw in African slavery Or actually in any other form of slavery um, that's existed in other parts of the world. So, no, is the answer. (laughs)
1: Okay. Moral
2: moral clarity, moral clarity. Um, You know, I wrote a book with that title uh, towards the end of the Bush administration because I was outraged. At the way that the Bush administration used that phrase to, um, you know, bring us into a disastrous criminal war uh, in ways that were neither moral nor clear at all. It doesn't mean that it's easy to um, to find uh, it does mean that moral clarity is moral simplicity, right? Most moral questions are quite complicated, and nevertheless, I think we can usually find enough clarity to act properly.
1: Okay, that that makes sense. And the the last question, because I see that we're we're out of time, is uh, this is from a a historian who. Uh, He's a very well-known historian. He says – I'm not going to say his name just in case he doesn't want to be named. But like uh, who is a specialist in the the history of the early Republican United States? Uh, And he says, uh, Professor Nyman, uh, you write, uh, many perhaps most countries have rapacious and violent histories that they cover in time with a fuzzy blanket of benevolence. We brought the natives' religion or railroads. The natives were no angels either, and besides, our neighbors were worse. In the end, the attempts at justification come to little more than everybody does it, and we weren't as bad as some. American sins are not worse than those of other nations. They are simply more jarring because, unlike the foundations of other nations, America's took place amid a fanfare of ideals. Other nations commenced by believing in nothing but themselves. Only America began its mourning by pledging allegiance to a set of principles um, that native Americans had a right to life and African Americans to liberty was a truth whose self evidence eluded the founding fathers from its inception, the United States of America insisted on ideals. It refused to realize. Um, And so then uh, he wrote in response, um, he said, um, uh, are America's sins more jarring? I'm, not sure, perhaps. Uh, I very much doubt the premise that only America was founded on a set of principles, however. I can think of plenty of other nations that found themselves this way, not least the French Republic. I agree that Native Native Americans and African Americans were outside the scope of those to whom liberty and equality were promised. Many, probably most white people were completely untroubled by that. Uh, some came to be troubled by that contradiction. Um, anyway, and he goes on, I'll skip the rest. But he basically says that um, lots of nations have been founded on uh, powerful ideals. America's not the only one. Well, um, would you
2: give me more examples? Because the French Republic, I mean, <clears throat> yes, people go through went through revolutions and they made statements about ideals. But by and large, nations are formed because particular tribes happen to find themselves somewhere. Okay. They don't go somewhere with a possible exception of the state of Israel actually is an interesting um, comparison. But uh, again, um, I think that's it's quite uh, a quite special case. Um, you know, I I don't I'd be interested to know what the other cases are because America, the United States of America has made a huge deal out of its founding documents always. It was seen by Europeans in the late 18th century as something incredibly new We have become quite jaded about it because of its, um, but it's, the U.S. is complicated. On the one hand, it's always trumpeting its ideals every time it goes on a new imperialist adventure. And on the other hand, there are an awful lot of imperialist adventures. So we we may become cynical about it, but... Uh, ideals have played a very different role in um, uh, in the history of the United States than in any other country I'm aware of. But I correct me if there's some if there are other countries I'm not thinking of. The French Republic doesn't count because it grows out of French history. You know, it's like saying, okay, so you go through a new. Um, you know, a new moment in history, but it's still the same set of people. No other country is saying, give me your tired, your poor, your hungry, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Come to us and we will, uh, we we need you, we want you, we will take care of you. Now, you know, the fact that immigration laws certainly um, – you know, undercut that quite early is one thing, but the fact that it stands in the New York Harbor and that this godforsaken administration is trying to deny that it stands. I don't know if you picked that up, that um, uh, some of the Trump administration claimed, well, it wasn't a real poem. The poem was put there after the Statue of Liberty, Um it's uh you know and, and he didn't mean you know I mean, it's, it's it's so extraordinary going after the symbol mm-hmm. of the United well, States well it's a yeah.
1: potent symbol that they need to get rid of but uh i see that uh it's like you know getting like a quarter past midnight where you are oh, so yeah. i i will let, i will let you go I, i'm sorry for keeping you later i have so many other questions i think what i'm going to do is uh um, either we're going to have to get you on another time or, or I'll send you some of the, you know, at some of the questions, um, uh, by email and you can sort of respond at your leisure if you, if the spirit moves. But, uh, thank I'll you find- so, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been, uh, this you- has been fantastic.
2: Okay. I'll tell you something. I'd be happy to continue another time. I mean, it's a bit of a bitch that you do it so late, but, um, uh, <laughs> I,
1: you
2: know, I I'm enjoying this uh very much. Your questions are fantastic. Uh your your listeners' questions are fantastic.
1: I literally have forty-three more questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so we'll have to get you back on another time.
2: If, if you want, I'm 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 actually happy. I've sort of devoted this year, I've decided um not to try and write anything new and just devote it to Talking about the book and its ram- ramifications. So, um, if um,
1: awesome. So we'll we'll book uh, we'll book another time in two weeks. That would be fantastic.
2: I think the fifth is sixth. So okay. So send me an email.
1: I shall. Uh, because
2: I've really enjoyed this. Awesome.
1: Uh, All right. Well, really- I I look forward to part two.
2: All right. Great awesome.
1: Job. Have a good sleep. Okay. Bye. See you too. Bye. Bye.